0: He is good. <laughs> My goodness. Just to hear you guys singing behind me is just amazing. Maybe it was the, the ladies behind me that I heard so loud, but I heard all of you guys. It was just amazing. Just to know that he is good. Ah. This morning we will be starting a new chapter in uh, as we continue in the gospel of Matthew and as we continue in our series King Jesus and we are still in the section that is dealing with the ministry of the rejected king as I've shared with you um, that again that takes up the bulk of the gospel of Matthew and we're seeing a lot of the good bad and the ugly when it comes to ministry as far as Jesus in his life and just some of the things that that he was uh, having to deal with while he was here on this earth, and so this morning we are starting Matthew chapter 18. So if you can make your way there, we will be reading the first 14 verses. Now before we get into our text, last week I, in last week's study, I told you that that we would be covering three different situations, um, and and we did, we covered three different situations, but the first two were covered by the other two synoptic Gospels, which is Mark and Luke, and that the last situation was exclusive to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I bring that up because the other two Gospels, when you're reading through the text of where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew, going to the other two Gospels, they don't share what what is Matthew's exclusive story, if you will. But what they do, they go from the betrayal, the death and resurrection of of Jesus, when Jesus was talking to them about that, and they go right into where our text is. And so what I want to do as we begin to read here, I, I am going to go back to last week's chapter and just read chapter, or verses 22 and 23 and then go right into verse 1 to k- kind of show you what the other gospels, how they, they just kind of go right through and they exclude that, that story about Peter having to go down and, and, and go fishing and get the, the money thing there. So Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, and then we'll jump right over to verse 1. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called the little child to him, set him in the midst of them, And said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child or little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives One little one like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame and maimed rather than having two hands and two feet and be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you, for it is better that you enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes, to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is a, that is astraying? And if he should find it, surely I say to you, he rejoices over more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so... It is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Father, I pray for your blessing upon this word. We've been having uh, been able to read it and have the privilege to open it up, Lord. Give me wisdom in teaching it in Jesus name. Amen. <clears throat> now, we what we don't have here is is a timeline of of when these two situations occurred again when we when you go to the other gospels they just go from one verse to the other Um, but even then when you have one verse to the other we don't always have the timeline they don't, don't always go right behind each other but they don't seem to be very far from each other these two situations that have occurred from what I have gathered in our text, as I've been studying and and looking over the other Gospels at the same time, when Jesus was talking about His betrayal, His death, and His resurrection, they had not gotten to Capernaum yet. So, So it seems like they have been walking and having a conversation as they are already coming down from Caesarea Philippi. It has been quite a trip. Again, it could be that they hung out somewhere, they, they spent the night somewhere, but they're on their way to Capernaum, but they really have not gotten there yet. And I say that because Mark's gospel says that Jesus talks to these guys in the situation where our text is at, and he asks them this question, what... What was it you disputed amongst yourselves on the road? Jesus apparently was not in the conversation that they are having, but he knew that they were kind of disputing around him. And even though he was not in the conversation, he knew what they were saying. Because when you read the other Gospels, without them answering a thing, because I think they were embarrassed that, they had, that Jesus knew what they were disputing about, Jesus knew exactly what they were saying. And so it says here that at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I really, really, really want to give the the disciples the benefit of the doubt here, guys, as I'm studying, as I'm looking at this. I want to give these guys the benefit of the doubt because we don't know exactly what that timeline is. Jesus has just been talking about how he's going to get killed, and it seems like in the next breath, they're going, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And again, we have the benefit of looking back and we have the whole story, (laughs) So again, I don't know the timeline exactly. But Jesus has already now told them within probably a a month or less that, that, that he would be killed. And I know that they understood that part. Because in the first time that Jesus says, hey, this is what's going to happen to me, Peter stands up and says, not on my watch, it won't. So he understood when he said, hey, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be, you know, all these things, Peter stands up, is like, no, it's not going to happen. And we just read in the text, in chapter 17, that when he tells them again, I'm going to be betrayed and killed and raised the third day, it says that they were very sorrowful. They were indeed very sorrowful. And so I get that. But what they didn't really capture was this whole resurrection thing. Twice. They have not really con- captured that concept because it wasn't normal. When he said, but I will raise up the third day, they're probably going, I have no clue what that means because nobody does that. And again, they, they are just flesh and blood just like we are. And if somebody started talking to you about that, you're probably going, eh, little cuckoo. I don't quite get it. That was so far-fetched that something like that would ever happen. But again, as I've been tracking these guys and tracking their story and tracking their travels for the last few weeks as we've been studying this, all of this has taken place in a month or less. This is what's been happening here. Mark's gospel does tell us that they were disputing about who was or who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven while they were talking or while they were walking. (laughs) The word is dispute. (laughs) They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. But however this whole thing is happening with the other gospels and with our text here, it seems here that in our text, now they're coming to Jesus and finally just kind of like, Hey, Jesus. Maybe you can settle this issue right now. Before anything happens to you, can you just settle the issue for us? That's what we were arguing about. Who's going to be the greatest? So understand, these guys do have the mindset of a kingdom. (laughs) Jesus has been talking spiritual, but they're still thinking physical. They're battling that. And I know that it's, again, we don't, we, we can look back and look at the story and go, how are you guys not getting it? Again, they are living in the now and they have no clue that even when he tries to to bring them into the spiritual realm, they're going, I'm not quite capturing it. But they understand that they're close to this guy and he, is, he has proven himself to be the Messiah and he's talked about this kingdom and they're still thinking, we're going to be in the cabinet, but who exactly is going to be like the vice Messiah, guy, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Who's going to be right next to Him? And they have been arguing this point for quite a while. Guys, they don't stop arguing this point, man. Right after the Last Supper, guess what they start fighting about again? Who's going to be the greatest? This is a common little theme. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever hung around with, like, guys for two or three days in a row. We just become very competitive. And, and, and you start saying and doing some dumb things, you know, when you hang out with guys for the most... I don't know if ladies do that stuff. But as for guys, it's like, man, we're one-upping one another all the time if we possibly can. I know it's not good, but we do it. That's just who guys are. These guys were always challenging each other, fighting about something, arguing about something, and what they were arguing about, even after Jesus has told them, hey, I'm about to die, guys. It's like, okay, yeah, we're kind of bummed out about it, but who's going to be the greatest? You can almost picture Jesus just shaking his head. These are the hand-picked guys I picked. <laughs> These are my boys. So their mind was on the kingdom, but their dispute is, who's going to be top dog? Who's going to be on your right hand? Who's going to be on your left hand? And, and, and Jesus, if you can just settle the issue right now and you confirm it, and I just picture Peter, and these guys will understand that I will be the greatest. I, for some reason, I just think Peter's, maybe James and John as well. But it's almost like if you can just confirm that I will be the greatest, great. That would be awesome. (laughs) Go ahead, go ahead, Jesus. And I truly think that this whole transfiguration deal that they were a part of has a lot to do with this. I, I really do as I'm looking at this. These guys got to experience glory while these other cats, they can't even cast out a demon from a young boy. And so I'm sure they're probably going, You guys couldn't even do that. None of you guys, for sure, are going to be the greatest. So you know that these three guys are competing against each other, and they are the inner circle, if you will. And so I kind of got a feeling that that is where this whole conversation and why it it all started. Now, I understand Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody about what you guys have just experienced. (laughs) I'm just thinking these guys, man, they're probably coming back going, you didn't see what I saw. What is it? I can't tell you. But it was glorious. It was stinking amazing. And they're probably going, what was it? it?" It's like, I can't tell you. But I've seen a lot. And so you can imagine, and, and maybe Jesus wanted them, all, all the, the guys to know. And maybe he, you know, they did tell, I, I don't know. He said, don't tell everybody about it. But maybe they're, they're, the 12 guys understood this. And so when they come and ask him the question, in verse 2 it says, And Jesus called the little child to himself and set him in the midst of them. Now, it seems like Jesus is ignoring the question that they are posing to him. And instead of answering them, there's a little child. And I don't know where this kid comes from. I don't know if they were just always running around, around there. He just grabs one of them. Here, come here, Mio. Come here. (laughs) You know, I don't know how that that all happens. But there's kids around, which I love. I love that. And he grabs this little kid. And and the, the phrase little child means childling. Of either sex, i.e., properly an infant, or by extension, a half-grown boy or girl. So I'm picturing more of an elementary type of kid, maybe preschooler kind of kid. And notice that that the children, especially this kid, he's not afraid of Jesus. <laughs> He's not intimidated by Jesus. Jesus is just one of those guys who was kind of like a lovable man for these kids. They're not like, oh, oh stranger danger, you know. They're, they're not like any of any, they were, they were, it's like, come here, mijo. And it's like, oh, okay. And, and, and they go right to him and Jesus brings him in and sets him in the midst of all of these because Jesus always welcomes children. They always seem to be around him. Again, Jesus doesn't ask or answer the question about who would be the greatest, but instead he sets this kid right in front of him, almost like this this visual aid, if you will. Mark tells us that Jesus took this kid and brought him up into his arms and held him in his arms. (laughs) And I wouldn't mind talking about that, but I already know, man, I'm going to start crying if I start talking about that tenderness there of who Jesus is, that He would do something like that and hold this little child as He's teaching these guys a lesson. These guys were talking about who would be the greatest, and Jesus wants to teach them a lesson on submission and humility. And He uses a child as an example. And this is what verses 3 and 4 say in the Amplified. And said, Jesus speaking, Truly I say to you, unless you repent, change, turn around, and become like little children, trusting, lowly, loving, forgiving, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven at all. Verse 4 whoever will humble himself therefore and become like a little child trusting lowly loving forgiving is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven isn't that a kick in the head right they're talking about we want to know about who's going to be the greatest and he says here let me talk to you about this kid let me talk to you about, and, and, and let me tell you about this, unless you that are crying about who's going to be the greatest, and unless you can become like this little kid, none of you can ever really see the kingdom of heaven. You're never really going to experience this, this, this kingdom, this amazingness. These guys were thinking great, greatest, and Jesus is thinking lowliest. You see, in God's economy, the way up, is down. To be the greatest, you must be humble, is what he's telling them. (laughs) These guys seem not to have a humble bone in their body. (laughs) A child, for the most part, knows that he is a child and knows his place. At least back then they did. (laughs) But there's this innocence about a child I know they're little rascals. I, I, I know that they're, they're born with a sin nature. I understand all that. But for the most part, a child has this, this humbleness that is non-pretentious. It's hard for them to get away from it. You know when they're trying to be sneaky sometimes? And they think you cannot see it? Or, or, or again, they, they, they're just not good hypocrites. I guess that would be a better word. They can't hide it like you and I can hide it. There's this nonpretentiousness about kids. In other words, children are, are trusting. They're lowly, loving, and forgiving. They really are. I, I, I think, again, I, I'm not taking away from their sin nature. I'm not taking away. But there's this innocence about them. And these are the qualities that make up the kingdom of heaven. And notice that Jesus doesn't say to these these guys, unless you are converted and become a scholar, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are converted or repent and become a theologian, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't do that. He says, unless you become as this little child who is not pretentious... In any way. I I love the fact that this text is so simple and it's not complicated. I I think we can all understand what he is telling us right here. The, The word converted does mean to turn, repent. In other words, turn away from and turn to. Turn away from the way you're going and turn to God. That's what it means. Make, make, Make a turnaround. The first action is to turn, repent, be converted. The other action is to become, which means bring to be or begin to be or to become equivalent to And the reason I say that it's not difficult for us to understand this is because every last one of us was a child at one time or another, right? I know your kids probably think that you were born an adult. (laughs) But we've all been there. We were all children. I, I, I don't care how old you are. You can go back and you can revert back and understand. I mean, he's not telling us to be childlike or child, childish. He's just saying, hey, I want you to go back to that innocence. And, and the, the only way that you can truly follow after me is to go back to your innocence. He's not requiring us to come to Him that now you have to do X, Y, and Z and become all these things. He's going, no, 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 no. Just humble yourself. Just become like a child. And I know that for some, children are like not your forte. <laughs> it's like, Mm-mm, I can't become a child. It's like, then you will not see the kingdom of heaven truly. You will not be able to experience what He is talking about here that we have to get down to the level of going, Lord, I do not want to be pretentious in any way. Again, I think we oftentimes make it so difficult in in walking with God. That, That, oh, you need to repent, but now you need to do all these things. And I don't think you've ever or I've ever told somebody, hey, you need to repent and become like a kid. That's not something that we talk about. Well, now you have to do X, Y, and Z, and it's like, no, all you have to do is humble yourself. What I have found in my vast studying of children, not that I, I just know how to be childlike. (laughs) I'm very childish. People tell me oftentimes, you act like a kid. It's like, so it's not hard for me to understand this. (laughs) What I love about children is that they really can't explain to you the difference between law and grace. They, they really don't understand that. I ask them to talk to you about the Trinity or something like that. Give me the deep theological meaning of what the Trinity means. What, what, what exactly are the doctrines of regeneration, propitiation, and reconciliation, young child? <laughs> They're going, ah! They're not required to know that in that sense so that they can believe and trust and and be forgiving. They're just that. But if you bring those kinds of things, those kinds of doctrines down to their level, I could guarantee you, you're not going to have an argument from them about how it is not logical for God to really give us a new birth because we don't deserve that or, 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 or accept that Jesus is the payment for our sins or the fact that, that he really wants to be reunited with us. <laughs> kids, are, kids are, again, they will believe the simple gospel. Jesus loves me, this I know why. Because the Bible tells me so. And when we bring it down to their level, they are so open to receive. Again, I would, I would love for all you guys to be here on, on VBS and just watch all these kids learn about Jesus and receive Him and accept Him. Oh, there's some little knuckleheads. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, they are very open to, to Jesus. They almost have to be taught to hate Jesus. They, they almost have to be taught to become atheists in that sense, that there is no God. For a young kid, I don't care what age, man, as soon as you can talk, start talking to them about Jesus, they know that they could talk to Him. For some reason, they know that. They can't explain all about it. They can't, they can't recite you know, the things in, in Revelation and all the craziness that might go on there. But they know that Jesus loves them. And, and it is so simple, isn't it? That You're going... Growing in our faith and coming to faith are two different things. Yet even as we grow in our faith, the key is to continue to have this childlike faith. I don't care how smart you have become. I don't care how scholarly you are in the Word of God. I don't care if you could talk with all these big old words that can blow people out of the water in, in such a level. It's like, really? Can you go down and teach a kid? Can you bring it down to a kid to help them understand? Because most of us live in that realm. <laughs> most of us live in that realm. We are to constantly be trusting lowly, loving, and forgiving to be like a child. That is what he is telling us to be. And he says, therefore, in verse 4, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And that word humble means to lower, depress one's soul, bring down, bring down one's pride. Bring it down. In other words, it means to see yourself as God sees you. <laughs> you can be so pretentious between, be, uh, before God and God just sees right through you. You could pray in the most eloquent King James language and, and God's going, just, just talk to me. Oh, but I have to butter you up. It's like, no you don't. It doesn't mean, humble doesn't mean that you loathe yourself or you hate yourself or you, you, you just pity yourself. Oh, I'm so humble. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm just so rotten. and so, You are that, don't get me wrong. But, but God sees you in, in a way that, that you cannot hide anything from Him. I, I heard one pastor say that humbleness is transparency. You are what you are and they can see right through you. People can see right through. You're nothing more, nothing less. That's it. That's the way God sees you. He takes you for who you are, <laughs> warts and all. And He knows everything about you. And that is humbling. Romans 12, 3 says, I say therefore, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly then he ought to think, but think soberly as God has dealt with e- to each one a measure of faith. Don't think of yourself too highly, guys. But only how God sees you. Just be open. Just be transparent to Him. He already knows it. He's already dealt you a measure of faith. You didn't even deserve that or earn that. And so children... To a, to a large extent, are, are destitute or, 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 or void of ambition, pride, and haughtiness. They are characteristically humble and teachable. They are. And Jesus points to this little child and he tells the disciples this little child right here or as he's holding them probably this one right here he's the greatest. And they're probably going he hasn't seen glory. He, he hasn't seen what we've gotten to see. This kid has not walked on water. This guy has not done anything. And you're pointing to him and say, you want to know who's the greatest? And he's pointing to this kid who's in his arms. This looks like the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And unless you humble yourself and become like this young child, you will not see it at all. In verses 5 and 6, he says, whoever receives a little one, uh, a little child like this in my name receives me, and whoever causes one to, uh, of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck, and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. And, and it's interesting because in these two verses, it's almost like like Jesus is blending these two concepts together to where he, he looks at this human child, as an example of humility, but he's also kind of alluding to children of God, no matter what their age, calling them little children. Jesus is talking to his disciples here. This answer is to them, and as Christians today, we must not only accept the little children for Jesus' sake, but understanding that He, because He doesn't neglect them, but also that we are to receive one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That we should seek to minister to each other. In other words, it is a serious matter to cause a child to sin. Or to lead him astray. Whether a a physical child or a child of God. It is a serious matter on God's account. That we should be careful that we are not stumbling one another, brothers and sisters, or causing each other to sin. Leading each other astray. Jesus takes this very very serious. That, that, that we would not be poor examples and or hurting them in any way. I'm talking about us right here. <laughs> that we would not be seeking to hurt one another. That to receive one another as we would receive Jesus. To treat each other like that with the respect and the honor as he is doing to this child, this literal child. The phrase "cause to sin" is one word in the Greek, "escandaloso," which means scandalize, scandalize, cause to sin, to trip, to to entrap, i.e., trip up, figuratively stumble or entice to sin, apostasy or displeasure, to make, or make one offend. Scandalize in that sense. You see, true humility always thinks of others and not self. It said it would be better, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck or hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's pretty harsh. But there's two types of millstones that, 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 he, that, that we have in Scripture. And one is turned by hand, however, but it's not a large one. It's a smaller one that would be, you know, something in a smaller area, but it would be a smaller one. And the larger one would be pretty big, and it's usually used, you know, by an animal or a beast of burden, you know, like a mule or something that would turn this thing around. And, and Jesus is actually talking about the big one, not the smaller one. He's talking about, hey, if you want to offend someone, if you want to cause someone to sin, it would be better if you had one of those millstones tied around your neck instead. It wasn't a figure of speech or it wasn't a a metaphor that he's using here. It was actually a mode of capital punishment to many of the Greeks, the Syrians, and the Romans and other countries and it kept millstone makers in business too <laughs> can you imagine oh you 're making a mill it 's like no it 's just for a friend of mine that 's uh, been causing me to stumble. <laughs> the meaning is it would be better for him to have died before committing this sin it would be It would have been better for him to 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 have died instead of injuring or causing to sin the weakest or the feeblest of Christians. It, 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 this will be regarded by Jesus as a very serious offense when we lead someone else astray. To, 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 to take their eyes, their focus off of Jesus and just kind of lead them in the direction that God has said, why are you doing that to them? And apparently, the offender will be punished accordingly, in Jesus' estimation. And so in verses 7 through 9 here, it says, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to the man by whom the offenses come, or the offense comes. The word woe is an expression of grief, and it is a very strong word. When it comes, especially from the mouth of God or Jesus here. And he uses it twice in one verse. The word offenses or offense and offense comes from the same Greek word that we just looked at just a while ago that, that means cause to sin, but in a different tense. It's scandalon, scandal. A, a, a trip, a trap stick bent sapling, i.e. snare, figuratively cause, to displeasure, cause of displeasure and sin, occasion to fall of stumbling, offense, thing that offends a stumbling block. That, that, that's what this scandal is, that you would cause somebody to fall to be a stumbling block in somebody's life. Proverbs 4, 14 to 17 says, And do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. He says stay away from it. Repent basically when he uses that word turn away from that. The truly humble person helps to build up and not tear down. We are to be stepping stones not stumbling blocks. But understand that a stepping stone gets stepped on quite a bit. (laughs) But he's called us to be. More of a stepping stone than a stumbling block in people's lives. For offenses must come, he says in verse 7. It is inevitable that offenses will come our way from the world and from other people. It is inevitable that, that thing, those things happen. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said. This is a fact. This is a promise. There will be offenses coming your way. Let us not be the ones that are offending others. Be very careful with that, especially your brothers and sisters. Be very careful. And then he goes on to talk about if your, if your right foot or your eye causes you to stumble or causes you to sin, cut it off, pluck it out. <laughs> now, obviously, Jesus is not, he's not advocating for mutilation, he already talked a little bit about this back in chapter 5 when he was talking about committing adultery in your heart, saying, hey, man, get rid of it. Get, get, get rid of that mindset. But what he is getting across here is the seriousness and how radical we need to be in, in dealing with the things that cause others to, to that we offend others or, or cause us to sin, that we would take it serious. It's as radical as cutting off a limb or plucking out an eye. And, 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 and again, and I think I shared this back when we were talking about it back in chapter 5, if you knew that you had cancer, wouldn't you do whatever measures necessary to cut it out, to take it out, to deal with it? Because you know the outcome of if you, if you don't. We would go, I will do whatever it takes to get this thing out of my body. I will take whatever measures. Jesus is saying, do the same thing. When when it comes to causing others to offend. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties or my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Help me, Lord. Help me not to go in that direction. You know my thoughts. You know everything about me. Just help me in that. It is better for you to enter into life maimed or lame or, or without two eyes than, than it is to enter in totally with everything. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, I picture getting up to heaven and just seeing all these people lame and maimed and eye patches on and stuff. It's like, eh, I'd probably be the same way. <laughs> Uh, it would be the same way. The words everlasting fire here mean perpetual burning. And the word hell here is not the word that we normally hear for the word hell, which is Hades in the Greek or Sheol in the Hebrew. It is the Greek word Gena or Gehenna, which was a place in the valley of Hanam, which is on the south side of, of Jerusalem, and, and that, that, that had become like a, this dumping ground. And in Jesus' day, in ancient days, and in Jesus' time, uh, well, before Jesus, in ancient days, there was a lot of human sacrifices offered there. And once it became this dump where there was rubbish and just animal carcasses and, and all this, there was constant burning there. There was worms and maggots all over the place. It was a perpetual burning and this is that picture that Jesus gives us of hell here, according to the gospel of, of, of Mark, where it says that the worm never dies and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he gets to verse 11, or verse 10, he says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you, that in heaven there are angels always... See the face of my Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Now we know that children are very, very important to God. And we've seen that throughout our text. So is it possible? Could it be? Is there any probability that God has entrusted the care of little children to a specific group of angelic beings, their angels, because that tripped me out right there. Is there such things as those guardian angels? Because it tells us here, hey man, be careful, for I say to you that, that in heaven their angels are all always see the face of God our Father. Maybe. It's interesting because in Psalm 91, 11, it says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In Acts chapter 12, verse 15, when Peter was thrown in prison and they're getting together to pray for him and the angel delivers him out of the prison and he's over at the house and he's knocking at the gate and a young girl by the name of Rhonda goes over there and, 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 and is saying... It's Peter. And she comes back. It's like Peter's in the gate. And they're going, little girl, (laughs) you're seeing things. We're praying that he gets out. No, he's at the gate. No, no, no. We're praying that he gets out. And it says this. It says, but they said to her, you are beside yourself. But she kept (laughs) insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Just interesting verbiage there. So is it possible? I don't know. But then again, he does use his angels. It says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Jesus humbled himself. He left heaven where he was at, and he humbled himself to become like a man come in the likeness as a man he came to save that which was lost he came to give his life a ransom for many and so we have the picture here of the greatest of all (laughs) humbling himself and that is the example that we are to follow and so from verse uh, 12 to the end of our text here uh, verse 14 it says what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he shall find it, surely I say to you, he rejoices over, um, more over the, that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of our Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." So here we have a short little parable that Jesus shares with them in regards to why he came. And we see in this parable that the shepherd rejoices over the recovery of just one. Uh, 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 One that is in his flock who has indeed wandered away. Not that he doesn't rejoice over the 99 that stayed. But he rejoices that he brought one back from being gone. And it just reminded me of the picture of the father and the prodigal son who was always looking. That that, that prodigal son never stopped being his son, just like the sheep that went astray did not stop being the shepherd's sheep. And most of us have heard the story of, of, of the sheep that continues to wander away and what the shepherd ends up doing to that, that sheep that is, that is just wanting to wander away that, the, that eventually the shepherd will break one of its legs and then he'll put him over his shoulder and then he will have to carry him until he gets better. But what a beautiful picture of who Jesus is that He would do that to us to bring us and put us closer to Him so that we can hear His voice right there. That that, that we will take on His scent (laughs) because He's holding us close going, quit walking away. It's dangerous out there, man. Just stay close to me and I will break your leg if I have to. (laughs) So God rejoices. That a man is restored because he seeks his salvation, his well being, and wills that not one of them is found to perish or is destroyed or marred. If God so loves and preserves the redeemed, his, those little ones that are his, then we should not despise them either. Be careful. that we should take great care not offending one another. If you have come to a point in your life, and I would say your Christian life, where there is more and more difficulty in maintaining relationships in Christ, (laughs) then maybe, just maybe, you've become more of a stumbling block than a stepping stone. You see, in God's economy, everything is thrown for a loop. The way up is down. You want to be first? Be last. You want to save your life? Lose it. And if you want to be the greatest of all, then be the servant of all. That's the economy of God. That's the way He works. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven the disciples asked Jesus answered and said whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven not hard to understand right peeps let's pray Father thank you thank you for this simple illustration Lord that you gave us here Lord every one of us Lord can can relate to being a child we've all been there Lord No matter what our childhood was like, Lord, we were all children at one point. And there was an innocence about us, Lord. And there was a trustworthiness, a lowliness, a forgiving, Lord, of trusting and loving. Lord, I I, I pray for us, Lord, with this message that you've allowed us to, to hear this morning. Because your word tells us, Lord God, specifically what it means to be greatest in the kingdom and that is to be humble. Please, Lord. We all know what pride looks like, Lord. We all know where pride gets us, Father. Lord, teach us, Lord, to become more like you. You gave us a great example in yourself and even in a little child, Lord. That we would become like that. That we would desire that, Lord. Nothing else. Oh, thank you so much, Lord. This morning, I, I don't know where you're at this morning with Jesus. I don't know how close you are, or how far away you are. Maybe you've never even accepted Jesus. I don't know. But he loves you so much. He truly, truly does. And maybe you've been far away, and I just want to pray for you. If you just feel like, man, I need to turn. I need, to, I need to get back to the basics of being a child. And maybe you've never come to Jesus, and this morning God is calling you to himself. And I just want you to raise your hand right where you're at. Again, if you're already a believer and you need to, to be prayed for right now, I just want to pray for you. If you feel like you've just gone that far and, you're, and you've strayed and he's bringing you back, is there anyone that I can pray for? Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for those who have raised their hands, Lord. Lord, again, Lord, that you would draw them, that you would draw them close. Father, for those who, who may not know you completely, Lord, they know about you, but they've never trusted in you, Lord, please, that the day would be that day. They would become part of the flock as well. And so, Jesus, we thank you and praise you for loving us so much, for teaching us what it means to be humble. I pray that you would help us and deal with us, Lord. Lord, help us not to be a stumbling block to the people around us anymore. Help us, Lord God, to be a, a building block, if anything, a stepping stone to encourage others, Lord. Blessed be your name for you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.